Well, if you're visiting with us here on Sunday morning, we are studying 1 Thessalonians together, and today we arrive at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can join me there. Our passage today is a glimpse into the future of human history. Not the made-up stuff of sci-fi movies, but a real glimpse into what is actually going to happen. History books can help us look back. I didn't really care for history when I was in school. I like it now, like reading history books. It helps us look back, but the Bible is able to look back accurately and also forward accurately. When we do look back into human history, we find something that we're all aware of. Human history is marked by many terrible wars. History has been full of all kinds of acts of terrorism and violence and riots and revolutions and anarchy and destruction and attacks and so on. That's even what's going on in our world now, right? Current news reflects all that. Putin forcing Russia to attack Ukraine. Hamas, which is just one Islamic terrorist group. Hamas brutally attacking Israel. Yet another mass shooting in our nation. This time in Maine, I know a couple who moved there recently because they chose that area because they wanted to get away from all the gun violence everywhere else. Doesn't matter where you live. That's the world we live in, full of horrible events. And these horrible events are a present day taste of what has happened over and over in history. And it's that reality, the truth about our history, that prompts many people to question whether human existence even has a purpose. Is there a goal? Is there any meaning to life? Well, as I said, the Bible gives accurate prophecy of the future. And when we read about the future there, we find that regardless of the wars and destruction that have occurred in our history, everything in history is indeed heading toward a goal. And that's because everything that happens is the outworking of the purposeful plan of the one true God, the one sovereign creator God. Many verses about that, of course. One is Isaiah 46, verse 10. It says that God declares the end from the beginning. There's history. In his own eternal mind, he declares the end from the beginning. And it goes on... To present this, that God says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And you know, sometimes I love to quote Job 42 verse 2, where Job articulates this truth to God, that God, I've learned this, no man can thwart your will. If you put it in terms of Isaiah 46.10, he's saying no man can thwart your purposes, your good purpose. No man can stop what you have purposed to accomplish. And to be more specific concerning the biblical view of history, we would conclude this too. Jesus Christ is the central figure. And everything is headed toward His return to vanquish His enemies on earth and to establish His kingdom on earth. 
It is our study of 1 Thessalonians that has brought us to look at the future of history and the fact that Jesus is coming again. As we've noted in previous studies, the Apostle Paul, along with his two teammates, Silas and Timothy, went to Thessalonica. They preached the gospel. People came to Christ. A church was planted. They stayed for a while to continue disciple and teach those believers. And they taught the Thessalonians much biblical truth during that time of ministering in the city, including eschatology, which is the study of the end times. And that teaching on eschatology included instruction on the rapture, what we call that event in the future when Christ will snatch up believers off of this earth and believers will meet him in the air. He taught them about that. And as well, he taught them about another important eschatological topic, something called the day of the Lord. But after Paul left Thessalonica, some questions arose in their minds about all of that. They had questions about the rapture. They had questions about the day of the Lord. So Paul wrote them this letter to answer those questions and to give them more instruction on those topics. We saw in verses 13 through 18, we've already studied that, he answered their questions about the rapture in that previous passage. And again, the rapture is the future initial aspect of Jesus' return. Scripture looks at Jesus' return as a package that includes several items. The rapture is the initial aspect of all of that when he comes to take the church out of the world. But the solemn truth is that the returning of the Lord actually to earth, the returning of the Lord, not only to snatch up believers at the rapture, but to come to the earth eventually, all of that is eschatology, the end times. But there's another aspect of his coming that will follow the rapture, and it is what I've brought up to you, the day of the Lord, sometimes simply called the day. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament prophetic term. It's mentioned about 19 times, I think it is, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, various prophets. It's also explicitly mentioned in the New Testament four times explicitly and then alluded to in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which we recently completed our study of on Wednesday nights. In its broadest use, this refers, the day of the Lord, this refers to the Lord's intervention into human history. And I think it's necessary to keep that broad definition in mind of the day of the Lord. It's his intervention into human history to certainly act as its judge, but also to establish his kingdom. And this is what all of history is heading toward, the day of the Lord and complete victory of Jesus Christ over all his enemies. So yes, all the wars in history have been a part of God's sovereign plan in some way. Yes, what is going on in the Middle East right now is all part of His sovereign plan in some way. But as bad as all the various wars have been, and as disconcerting as the attack on Israel is, and as terrible as all other acts of terrorism and violence and shootings have been, none 
comes close to the level of destruction that is still to come to this world. When God pours out His wrath upon the earth during this period of time called the day of the Lord. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, this is the very topic that Paul now focuses on. So this section is an appropriate companion passage to the preceding passage about the rapture. In our study of that, I presented the view of the rapture that our church holds, the pre-tribulational view, which is the view I personally believe satisfies most of the biblical data the best. That's the previous passage. This section is an appropriate companion to that. This is the second half, then, of the distinctively eschatological look in this epistle, this block of material in the epistle. So join me there, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. I'm going to make a run at verses 1 to 3 today. The first few verses of this section that addresses the day of the Lord. And we're going to break this section down, verses 1 to 3, into its two major emphases. Two major emphases, and here is the first emphasis. Number one, the uncertain timing of the day. The uncertain timing of the day. Paul begins his instruction on the day of the Lord by addressing what they, the Thessalonians, had expressed curiosity about, something the Bible calls the times and the epics, or the times and the seasons. Verse 1, now, as to the times and the seasons, or epics. That's a connective phrase, now as to, or your translation may say now concerning. It's transitional. It indicates that a new subject is being introduced now. It's used frequently in the apostles' writings that way to signal a change of subject. So in our verse, it signals a new aspect of the Lord's coming. Out of all that's considered part of the future Lord's coming, this is a new aspect of it. The Lord's coming is sometimes called the parousia. So what is happening here in this text is that the text turns from the topic of the rapture, one aspect of eschatology, to a new aspect of eschatology, and he summarizes it all by saying the times and the epics. This phrase refers in a general sense just to the end times. The end times. And it's found in both the Old and the New Testament. One example in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, and it says, it is he, God who changes the times and the epics. And he gives an example of that. He removes kings and establishes kings. When God sovereignly does that, that's an example of him working in the times and changing the times and the epics, that verse says. Fast forward to the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, that great verse where Jesus is talking to his disciples after his resurrection from the grave, right before his ascension. They ask him, Jesus, is this the time you're going to establish your kingdom on earth? That's a very important question to them. And Jesus didn't say, no, you've missed it. Really, we should just take an allegorical interpretation to all I said about that. No, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epics. The times or the seasons, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
Now, these two words, times and epochs, are generally synonymous. And on occasion, they're used interchangeably, but they're not exactly equivalent terms. They both do relate to time. But there's different nuances in these terms. The first term, times, is the Greek term chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. We get our word chronology from that. So indeed, that's what this term refers to, chronological time, clock time, like the time that's staring me in the face with that clock back there on the back wall, and my own clock that I bring into the pulpit every time. So you know that I have two. So you know that I keep track of that. Chronological time. Clock time. Calendar time. It's dealing with measurement, the measurement of time. And so it would include the idea of dates. But the second term, seasons or epochs, is the Greek term kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. This term refers to a period of time, a period that's characterized by a certain quality or certain events. We could call it an era, E-R-A, or a season or an epoch. It's used in Luke 21, verse 24 that way. It talks about the times of the Gentiles. It just means the period, the period, the season of the Gentiles. With this term, the focus then is on the quality, the character of the period of time, including what signs might accompany the events during that period. But notice that both terms are in the plural. So thinking of it that way, the plural form, the first one, times, plural, points to the many chronological ages that are measured on the calendar that intervene before the coming of the Lord. The second term in the plural, epics or season, indicates how those many intervening periods are distinguished and characterized by various events within that time period. And the point is that many different time periods and many events in those periods make up then the end times. And verse 1 says the readers had some knowledge of this already. Notice verse 1, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. They already knew something about this topic, the times and the epics. And they had this knowledge, some level of knowledge, because of that oral teaching that they had received from the missionaries when Paul and Silas and Timothy were there in the city with them. So when those missionaries were in Thessalonica, they would have made some things plain to these Believers, and one thing they would have told them about is that the coming of the Lord is not an event that they can mark as a fixed date on the calendar. The missionaries would have told them about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 and 44. I've read this to you before, Matthew 24, 36. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Verse 44, for this reason, you must also just be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The missionaries would have taught them that. The missionaries would have told them what Jesus said later in Matthew 25, verse 13. Jesus said, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. The missionaries would have taught them that verse in Acts 1, 7, Jesus' answers to the disciples about the kingdom, where Jesus said the times and the epics, they're, they're, they're a matter of 
divine determination. They're not a, they're not a proper subject for Christian speculation. So therefore, what they already knew was exactly all that God intended them to know. And that knowledge that God intended them to know included this, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now that modifier, full well, actually means the idea of full accuracy. They knew accurately about a subject. And the subject they already knew full well or accurately about was this, that this period called the day of the Lord was going to come just like a thief in the night. They already knew that. Which is interesting, the paradox that's here, if you think about it. Here's what Paul is essentially saying. You accurately know that nothing accurately can be known about the precise date for the day of the Lord. You accurately know that. To put it differently, what they did know was the uncertainty of the timing of this future event. Let's look more into this future time called the day of the Lord for a moment. It's interesting that Paul uses it here without any definite articles like the article the. That's the definite article, the. It's in our English translations, but it's not in the Greek text. It literally just says day of Lord. You know full well that day of Lord will come. When it's used without the article, that is a way of putting the stress on the character of this period of time. It's another way of saying then, it's the day that belongs to the Lord. It's the day of Him. His day. It's His day when He will display His character in work in judging the wicked, and as well when He will display His justice in the establishment of His righteous rule in his kingdom. That's why I define the day so generally. I think that satisfies most of the data about that in Scripture. It's a period that belongs to the Lord. And in his day, it goes back to that word I gave you. He's intervening in history to accomplish all that history has been aiming toward. Some people look at history and say it's cyclical, but it's not. Some people look at it and just say, well, it's linear. Yes, but that's not accurate enough. It could be linear and not headed toward any purpose. It is linear, but it's all moving toward the aim that God has determined in his own eternal mind. And there's coming this day, this period of time, where it's going to be very obvious that Jesus is intervening in history to move it along to that end. And therefore, it is a broad concept that includes many different aspects of his intervention. It is definitely associated with the ultimate overthrow of God's enemies. So yes, sometimes it's used with a focus on judgment. It'll also be a a day of national deliverance for Israel. Scripture teaches that, that at that time, in this future day of the Lord, Israel, as it's formed at that time, 
is going to experience a mass revival recognizing Jesus for who he is as the Messiah and believe in him. Scripture even says, all of Israel, as it's seen on that day on the earth, will be saved. It's going to be the day of salvation for many still of God's elect. There's going to be those on the earth during the day of the Lord that are still going to come to Christ because they're God's elect. But yes, it'll definitely be a day when God's wrath is poured out on his enemies. Since it includes God's wrath, then a major section, a major aspect or element or component of the day of the Lord is what we call the tribulation. As noted in Jeremiah and Daniel and Joel and Matthew 24. You've already taught on this, especially on Wednesday nights when we went through the book of Revelation, but I've mentioned it before. There is this prophecy in Daniel called Daniel's 70th week. It's a week of seven years, so a seven-year period. This seven-year time that's still future is, will be a time of gradually increasing and growing agony, human agony, and it will be climaxed by the Messiah's second coming literally to earth. A coming that will terminate this earthly turmoil, turmoil through direct judgment. All that takes place during this future seven-year period, which is what you see explained in Revelation 6 through 19. All that takes place during this future seven-year period is connected. All the events of this period are inseparable. All must run their course before Jesus will personally appear on the earth. The point is that all the special divine intervention and dealings preparatory to the second coming, all of it's part of the day of the Lord, as is the coming itself. The end times, you see, are a unit. So again, just to press the point even further with redundancy, in the broadest sense, the day of the Lord includes all that God does as the goal of history. It includes that all that takes place during Daniel's prophesied 70th week, known as the tribulation, which leads up to the official second coming. It includes the fact that during the seven-year period, there'll be the rise of Antichrist, and Antichrist will be allowed to do what he wants for a time. It includes all the cosmic disturbances that are noted in the book of Revelation in those chapters. All the seal and trumpet and bold judgments poured out on the world. It includes the second coming itself, the battle of Armageddon, the vanquishing of the Lord's enemies, the sheep and the goat judgment, the binding of Satan, the establishment of Jesus' earthly kingdom known as the millennium, the loosing of Satan and subsequent worldwide rebellion at the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment when Satan and all rejectors of Christ are cast into the lake of fire for eternity, and then the new heavens and the new earth. All of this and each part represents the Lord's intervention in human history to bring about everything he's been moving history toward. And what he's been moving history toward is his total subjection of and rightful rule over the universe. All of it in each part can be called the day of the Lord. But in any given passage, one aspect of his day might be emphasized. 
And the context then of any given passage determines what aspect of the day of the Lord is being referred to. And that's the case here in 1 Thessalonians 5. The aspect of the day specifically emphasized are the elements of judgment and wrath, God's wrath poured out on his enemies during the tribulation that lead up to the second coming. Of course, this future earthly wrath does not pertain to the church. When you get to the book of Revelation, dealing with this future, the church is not even mentioned. And verse 9, I believe, confirms the same point. The church's meeting with Christ will be in the air. And in that meeting, the rapture, that meeting is separate from God's dealing with those on earth during the tribulation, the day of the Lord. To say it differently, this imminent event, the rapture, will essentially be simultaneous with and coinciding with the beginning of divine judgment against earth during the seven-year tribulation. And that's why Paul can talk about these two events back to back, the rapture and the day of the Lord in successive paragraphs. So back to verse 2. Interesting, the verb will come in verse 2 is in a particular form that's called a futuristic present tense, which is kind of an odd thought. A futuristic present tense. It's It's a use of a present tense to portray the day as if it's already on its way. So it's a present tense, it's coming, it's happening, it's on its way with an arrival anticipated any time in the future. Now some get confused, I believe, about the fact that the judgment referred to here is on its way, but still in the future. So what they do, they try to make all the prophecy fit events that have already happened in the past. They try to make the prophecy fit events that were even mentioned in the Old Testament that have already happened in history. And one reason for the confusion and one reason for these invalid attempts is they don't seem to understand that Old Testament prophets, when it comes to this topic of the day of the Lord, they envisioned a historical day of the Lord something that happened in their day that was a preview of the final eschatological day of the Lord. To say it differently, God often did use providentially controlled circumstances like using one nation to destroy another one or natural disasters. He used that as instruments in his hand in time at that time. And that means that there are Old Testament prophecies that had what's called a near fulfillment, a fulfillment at that time, but were also pointing to a far fulfillment in the future. I'll give you a couple of examples not related to the day of the Lord. In Psalm 22, you can't read Psalm 22 without thinking, oh, this is talking about the crucifixion. Just the language that's used. It is but it had a near fulfillment. It was talking about David's suffering at that time. But in the far fulfillment, it was a prophecy about the crucifixion of Christ, Psalm 22. Another one we're familiar with, Isaiah 7, verse 14, especially at Christmas, 
Isaiah 7.14 does refer to the historical birth of Isaiah, the prophet, his son, a literal son. But prophetically, it was pointing to the virgin birth of Christ. All the same verse. And that's what happens with day of the Lord passages as well. You don't have to remember these, but I'll just give you a sampling. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 is talking about a historical day of the Lord that happened at that time. And you move just a few verses further, verse 9, in the same chapter, and it's referring to the eschatological day of the Lord in the future. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 14, is the historical day of the Lord in which Edom was judged literally at that time, and yet verses 15 to 21 describe the eschatological day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, 7 through 14, predicted this imminent historical day of judgment on Judah. It was fulfilled shortly after the Babylonian captivity. And yet you go two chapters further, chapter 3, he talks about the day of the Lord, but it's the final day of the Lord in the future. So the day of the Lord was near because God was about to act in some historical event at that time. It actually happened. But the historical event itself was an anticipation, a preview, a taste of the final eschatological judgment. And you know that when you honestly look at what the Bible says about this future day, and you look at the historical events, and you find that those historical events did not include everything that's said about that future day of the Lord. That's definitely true of one date in particular. I'll just use an example of what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the conquest and destruction of Jerusalem. Some have tried to make that event be the fulfillment of all that's talked about here in 1 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation concerning judgment, even to the point that that was the second coming of the Lord in judgment upon the earth, 70 A.D. But there's no way exegetically or even historically to make that event, as terrible as it was, fit all that's said about the day of the Lord. But it was important. It was a foreshadowing. It was a taste of future judgment. But that was not the judgment spoken about in Revelation or the second coming of the Lord. As I said, those historical days are previews. But what's going to happen in the eschatological future day of the Lord will be far greater and more terrible, far greater in extent and more terrible in its destruction than anything we've seen in our history. So back to verse 2, this time of judgment that leads up to the second coming, here's what they knew, it'll come like a thief in the night. What's the significance just of that little expression in the night? I'll tell you what it's not saying. Some try to make it say, oh, I know what it's talking about. It's saying that the rapture and the day of the Lord is actually going to happen at night. That's not the point of this. It will be night somewhere. But it's not night all at the same time on the globe. The phrase in the night is just saying something about what thieves do. Thieves operate under cover of darkness. So the point is unexpectedness, uncertainty of timing. That'll mark the tribulation's inauguration, the day of the Lord. And that comparison is the point of the language. He says... It's like this. One thing is like another thing. 
The day, as, as a thief is, so is the day of the Lord. That kind of construction is used here, and so it's stressing the similarity between the two events. But it doesn't mean everything about a thief is like the Lord's coming. He's not coming to steal something. The comparison lies just in the point of suddenness and unexpectedness and uncertainty of timing. The thief comes that way, suddenly at a time that cannot be determined. The day of the Lord will start that way, suddenly, when people are not expecting it. So obviously, the time of its arrival will not be revealed. Just like a thief doesn't announce that. He doesn't send cards out in the mail to let you know next Tuesday night when you're gone to church or whatever, I'm going to rob your house. He comes when people are asleep, when they're not watching. So the phrase in the night speaks of the, of the surprise even, the, the devastating surprise that the Lord's coming brings to those who, who were not watching for it and caught unprepared. It ends up, as it, as it grows, becoming a terrible shock. We'll see in a moment how they deal with it. Just so you'll know, the phrase in the night is only found here, but the idea is found elsewhere, even in Jesus' words. Matthew 24, verse 43. Be assured of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. Not the exact same phrase, but the time of night, same idea. In Revelation 16, verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Same idea. So like I said, the point is not that Jesus will come literally at night, but it's the point of unexpectedness, uncertainty. And these believers in Thessalonica knew that part. They were prepared spiritually in that sense, even though the timing was uncertain. And this fatal and devastating result of being unprepared for the coming day is now vividly portrayed in verse 3, which gives us the second emphasis, number two. Number one, the uncertain timing of the day. Number two, the inevitable devastation of the day. The inevitable devastation of the day. Unbelievers, keep this in mind, unbelievers are the ones against whom the devastation of the coming day of the Lord will be unleashed. And for them, those who are not in Christ and therefore unprepared, the consequences will be devastating even though they think they are secure. Verse 3, while they are saying, peace and safety. Now that term, they, comforting pronoun here, it refers to the unbelieving world, not the church. The vast masses of unregenerate mankind left on earth after the rapture are going to continue to be worldly-minded. They're going to continue to be preoccupied with the things of this world. They're going to show no interest in spiritually of what's going on around them and preparing for the Lord's return. So instead of anticipating and preparing for increasing judgment that they're going to experience, they settle into this very dangerous and fatal, self-deceived sense of security. And that verb saying is present tense. They're going to keep saying this to themselves. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's, it's going to work out. No, it's okay. I, I don't, I, I, it's, it's okay. They're going to repeatedly assure themselves that everything is safe and secure 
everything's going to work out somehow because it always has. These two terms, peace and safety, it's the only place they occur together in the New Testament. The first one refers to something inward, an inward tranquility and sense of security. The second, safety, has the thought of then standing and being unshaken. But here's the question. From what will they feel themselves safe and secure? Because you could ask, I mean, how could they say that as you see what's going to unfold in the day of the Lord in the book of of Revelation, these cosmic disturbances and judgment coming and all these kind of things, how can they say this as they look at that? It's not about that. This is not necessarily going to be their thinking about the conditions going on, the national, international conditions. I mean, think about it. Even unbelievers get concerned over wars and attacks and shootings and so on, just like anyone else. No, they'll see what's going on around them. The idea here is a sense of security from God. A sense of security from God's divine intervention in their lives. In other words, just like unbelievers do now, unbelievers alive during the tribulation are going to deaden their consciences. They're going to blunt their consciences against the repeated conditions and the repeated warnings that judgment is coming because of one reason, their sin. They're going to reject that truth. And because they reject it, they're going to convince themselves that they're safe from God's judgment. God cannot judge them. Do you know, in addition to their own efforts to silence their consciences in this way, to repeatedly say this to themselves, Matthew 24 adds something else that's going to be going on during this time. They're going to be deceived by false prophets. Lying deceivers are going to dupe the world into believing that peace and prosperity are just around the corner. Now, Christ puts it in these words as an illustration in Matthew 24. He says it's illustrated by looking at the days of Noah. It's the same kind of thing. Matthew 24 verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man, which again, there's a package. The day of the Lord that leads up to that and includes that. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Noah was warning them. Verse 39, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. It's illustrated by the days of Noah. He also said in Luke 17 that this is illustrated by the days of Lot. Luke 17, verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And he says this, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. You'd think they would get it, but they won't. They'll be entrenched in their rebellion and their hatred of spiritual things and truth. So this feeling of security in the unbelievers through all this, it's a, it's a delusion. It's a fatal delusion. 
And when their delusion reaches its peak, then this is what happens, verse 3. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. And the original word order is, is quite striking here. It's then suddenly upon them destruction comes. That modifier suddenly is put emphatically at the beginning to indicate that the doom overtakes them and it's unexpected, it's unforeseen, though it should have been expected. It catches them unprepared. At the very time that they're rehearsing that mantra, peace and security, peace and security, destruction is going to come. And just so you'll know, the word destruction here doesn't mean annihilation. As if they don't exist anymore. Some teach that. It doesn't mean that. It's a word that points to ruin, the loss of anything that gives worth to even being alive. As one writer said, it does not denote the loss of being, but rather the loss of well-being and the very purpose of being. Revelation even says they'll despair of life itself. And that verb rendered will come as that same kind of futuristic present. It, It speaks of the coming. It's on its way. It is coming, but it takes them by surprise. They'll suddenly become aware of it when it overwhelms them. But it's them. Again, my favorite word in this verse The pronoun them refers to unbelievers. Those who have spurned all warnings of coming judgment. Those who have rejected all the offers of God's grace. Just like people today who die in that state and face the judge. So by using that term, Paul was intentionally reassuring the Thessalonians that they would not face this destruction. We'll have to save this for our next time, but... Paul adds a further figure there that brings us to our point of inevitability. What illustrates inevitability? A woman having labor pains. What's inevitable? There's something that comes at the end of all that. (laughs) I prophesied this morning on the way in to my wife. I prophesied that I didn't think I was going to finish this passage this morning. (laughs) So as you've heard others say, it's sometimes sermons are like salami or bologna in sausage. You can just cut it off and pick back up there next time. But with what I give you next time and this passage completed, I'm going to do something else too. And next time does mean two weeks from today. We have a special sermon next Sunday. But two weeks from today, I'm going to finish this and give you an overview of the entire tribulation, revelation, Actually, chapters 4 all the way through 18. I don't know how long it took us to teach that on Wednesday nights. You're going to get it in like 30 minutes. The entire tribulation in one dose. Because it connects with this. That'll be two weeks from today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into the future. Accurate glimpse, not sci-fi. But what you determine in eternity past that would happen. So Lord, help us as believers to live with a sense of preparedness, not physical preparedness, not thinking in terms that we got to dig a hole to get in and stockpile food, but it's spiritual preparedness. 
How can we live our lives every day regardless of what happens? To extend the kingdom and to obey the Lord, our Savior. To live for Him. Help us to live with a sense of expectation. But Lord, I do pray for anyone here who hasn't come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. May they take seriously the warnings that are in Scripture. Warnings about judgment and yet offers of salvation. As the psalmist said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As Paul wrote, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray you would open the hearts of some people today to understand they need to repent while they still have the opportunity. May they come to see their need for Christ. May they turn their back on self-dependency and trying to save self through good works or being better than others. May they hear the call, the command of Christ to come to Him for forgiveness of sin and to find rest for their souls. May you open their hearts that they might trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior today. It's His name we pray. Amen.